Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450-WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Well, in Washington and around the country, the number one topic seems to be UFOs. After a 60 Minutes profile featuring interviews with military pilots, articles at major newspapers, comments from President Obama, that there are objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. People are taking the issue very seriously. In the next few weeks, the Department of Defense is set to release a report of their investigations into UFOs. Paul and Matt had one of the top experts in the country on analyzing UFO videos on Beyond Politics this week. What did you find out? And what does everyone make of all this, Congressman Hodes? E.T., go home. <laughs> E.T., go home. I promised Matt that I would, I would, I would, I would not be tongue-in-cheek i would take this seriously so all i can say is et can, can i just say where i was coming from on this this guy we interviewed this expert is british he has a wonderful restraint if you've ever listened to the tour de france commentary he has this very like laid back calm demeanor and i was just like look let's let's go with our guest on this one but now I guess all bets are off. All bets are off. I mean, he he did have a great British accent. It was the kind of British accent that if he was if he was describing alligator hunt, he would he would be able to talk about somebody being eaten by an alligator without breaking stride, st- stiff upper lip. Anyway, um, we did have Mick West, uh, a real uh, an expert in debunking conspiracy theories and in analyzing uh, what purported to be uh, videos and um, recounts of of contact or sightings or observations with uh, unidentified flying objects or UAPs, as uh, they're now called, um, unidentified aerial phenomena. So, I mean, I... What I found interesting, for example, was his explanation of a video taken by the nose camera, very sophisticated, very expensive piece of gear or piece of kit, as it were, um, in the nose of an F-18 that um, photographed um, uh, what was described as a white tic-tac type object um, at some distance and it, it's a it's a little over a minute long video. And at the end of the minute long video, the object appears to just scoot off to the left faster than any any conventional object might be thought to do it. And Mick had a very reasonable explanation. He said that he had analyzed the numbers on the screens and uh, and and with an explanation of the way a camera rotates and on its gimbals and tracks and how it works, he explained <clears throat> that what we saw was not the object scooting off to the left, but the camera losing its tracking ability of the object, which appeared for most of the video to be hovering motion, motionless or nearly motionless in the center 
of the screen uh, of this video. And, and we went on through a, a whole series of, of videos and accounts, and uh, he described his methodology, he described his take, and in general, it was a sober and serious and fascinating discussion that, that belied my tongue-in-cheek opening from the Spielberg, famous Spielberg movie, um, in which the friendly alien <clears throat> is left behind by his comrades, um, dressed up in a variety of insulting costumes, and then ends up being reunited with his comrades in a tear-jerking farewell. And of course, that contrasts with the depiction in the great uh, greatest movie of all time, Independence Day, um, in which Jeff Goldblum um, is able to mastermind with, with literally uh, string and duct tape um, and ancient computers, because this is- Wait, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for <laughs> listeners who haven't seen Independence Day. Who hasn't seen Independence Day? Uh, well, you got to go American. See, you got to go see Independence Day. And anyway, in that movie, uh, the giant alien mothership arrives, hovers over a civilization, deploys a destroyer spacecraft, and it's up to the American military, of course, to take the lead with their puny little weapons and somehow fly to the center of the mothership and destroy it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I mean, we, we've got a variety of, of, of uh, depictions of extraterrestrial life. And um, it's always been fascinating to think that there is uh, super intelligent life beyond our knowledge, beyond our borders. It was so it's so fascinating that in 2007, then majority leader of the United States Senate, Harry Reid, tucked into the Pentagon budget $22 million and installed a researcher, Louis Elizondo, on the fifth floor of the Pentagon. And for five years, the government, and apparently, folks, this is when I was a congressman, and I confess, I now confess, I didn't review line by line the Pentagon budget, and I, like most other members of Congress, never knew there was $22 million devoted by Harry Reid in the Pentagon budget to studying the encounters uh, of a close kind that uh, were being reported by the U.S. military. And the New York Times did an interesting article on it. Um, and finally, the Pentagon acknowledged the existence of the program, which had been part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. It went on for five years. Mr. Elizondo continued to work even after the funding direct from the Pentagon dried up because he said he worked with officials from the Navy and the CIA. So our government certainly back then was uh, becoming interested. And he finally, Mr. Elizondo, uh, continued to work out of his Pentagon office until he resigned in protest uh, to what he characterized as excessive secrecy and internal opposition. Um, so, you know, the government's interest, um, has been, uh, ongoing since 1947. 
Uh, they be, the Air Force had a series of studies that investigated more than 12,000 claimed UFO sightings that ended in 1969. It was called Project Blue Book. Uh, and about 700 of the sightings remained unexplained. And what I find most fascinating is that given the polarization in the country, on every political issue, the one place where we finally all seem to come together is on UFOs. It's the one place where, where all of us are somewhat fascinated. Some of us are more skeptical than others. I myself, as I recounted, I think on this program a while ago, recounted an observation of my own, of an unidentified aerial phenomena, which was not simply my own, because as I reported then, the next day, press reports came out of nearby towns in the areas immediately surrounding where I was that confirmed or replicated or duplicated exactly what I had observed, a large triangular object with with lights seemingly on the bottom, which had disappeared out into, as if disappearing out into space at a rate of speed that was inexplicable and a flight pattern that did not seem to be conventional. And my account was supported by accounts from a Vermont police chief and a Vermont fire chief and various residents of Vermont town. So I don't know what to tell you, but I do know that the fascination, um, it, it's, it, it's, it, it is a convenient place in light of our current, current um, uh, chaotic scene with pandemics and political dysfunction um, and existential challenges to our existence, such as climate change, which is very challenging to wrap your brain around. But with all the challenges we face as humans, how wonderful and convenient it is to be able to come together to wonder whether or not we have been visited by visitors from afar. And my question is, if we have been visited by intelligent life from other planets, intelligent enough to create vehicles that can penetrate our atmosphere and hover above us and disappear at rapid rates of speed, where is the, the evidence on the ground? Why why won't they talk to us? I'm thinking of Jodie Foster in the movie Contact. I mean, they haven't sent any complex algorithmic signals by audio or video. They haven't, you know, uh, there's no ET. But maybe that's why Area 51 exists, because maybe Harry Reid installed a giant freezer. And in the freezer are the remains of the crashed aliens that Harry went out into the desert and dragged back to Area 51 to put in his giant Frigidaire. Well, now I'm not being serious anymore, but, but, but where's the evidence, folks? So, so Mick West did give me a bit of a reason to be a little more skeptical about the phenomena 
despite my skepticism, everybody in government's talking about it. Marco Rubio, President Obama, the Pentagon, members of Congress. Soon we're going to see, although we couldn't have a bipartisan commission for January 6th, soon we'll see a bipartisan commission to investigate UFOs. And that will go on and on and we'll come up with no answers. Alicia Preston, donning the tin hat today. Uh, you've written about this topic recently. Your thoughts? How many kids were named Elliot after E.T. came out? I'm going to mm. look into that. I can give you a hot take, Alicia. Was that a crappy movie? I mean, that was a terrible movie, right? It was a fantastic movie. That yeah, was a great wrong. movie. Yeah, it was a great you're, film. You're both wrong. Well, you have to look at it. Um, it wasn't an alien movie. It was a movie about a love story between a little boy and his friend. Uh, treacly nonsense. No, it, it, it's fantastic. You have no soul. That's true. Matt Robeson. But I actually don't I don't cast a I don't cast a shadow or a reflection in a mirror. I'm not surprised. No, I mean, actually, that movie, if you look at pop culture over the last hundred years, you know, what's happening in outer space and aliens coming to Earth as as been very dominant and it goes kind of in waves you know the 70s and the early 80s the 70s we had close encounters of the third kind you know who didn't start making mashed potato mountains after that it literally influences us we think about it we have et no lie reese's pieces started flying off the market people are fascinated by the possibilities right i mean star wars isn't an alien movie because there's no earth involved but it is a fascination with outer space and different beings and things of that nature so we have this long history, but let's understand how significant this is right now. A week ago, Jen Psaki, the press secretary to the president of the United States of America, stood in a briefing room at the White House and had prepared remarks about UFOs. I mean, this is something out of a movie like Independence Day, and yet it actually happened in real life. That is significant. I mean, I don't know what's going to come out in the papers that they say could be released as early as this week that, you know, from the director of intelligence. I suspect if much is released, there's going to be a whole lot of redaction in there. And the question is that Paul asked is why? Why don't they tell us? Can you imagine? We all have our beliefs or disbeliefs and I'm wearing my tin hat and, you know, I believe that there is in, you know, superior life forms out there that can make it here that we couldn't do the reverse to them. But can you imagine if the government actually provides us proof that there are people from another planet or beings from another planet or beings from another country with more advanced technology than we have that can come to Earth and do something with us? That's actually a pretty scary thought. We think it's fun. We talk about E.T. We talk about the mashed potato mountain. But the reality is it's pretty darn scary to think there may be beings from a galaxy far, far away that can come here. Because that means they can do what they want to us and we can't do much about it because we aren't even close to that level of technology. So I think denial, such as the gentleman you interviewed, people consciously or subconsciously will look to find a way to deny that there is advanced life forms out there. Because if we are not the superior being that we believe we are, then that's pretty darn scary. Matt Robeson, your thoughts? First of all, I commend the, what we did this week was we actually did the interview on video. And as you hear this, the video is available on the Beyond Politics Facebook page. So check that out, by the way, please follow us on Facebook as you do, especially if you appreciate these kinds of discussions. Um, that full video is available there. It's also available on YouTube. Uh, I'm putting up a slightly condensed version of it because what I did was I spliced in the actual Department of Defense video 
with Mick West's live video analysis. And I, I put in with, with video editing, I highlight the spots on the video that he's describing uh, verbally as we go through the discussion. So you can judge for yourself. I, I, I urge listeners to do that. Why? Because serious people in government and, and serious people out of government, I include ourselves in that, are taking this discussion seriously. It matters. Why? I mean, as Marco Rubio said on 60 Minutes, if there are Chinese aircraft in our airspace that are doing things that we can't account for technologically, we really want to know about that. And of course, as Alicia said, if there are alien spacecraft, then we want to know about that. Look, the problem that I think Mick West faces and that discussions like this face, and if you're someone like me who believes that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, the problem we face in taking a rational scientific approach to topics like this is that it is a bummer. It is a freaking bummer. There was actually a great episode of the radio show Radio Lab a few years ago where they did a, a profile of a famous mentalist act, right? And then they got Penn Gillette, the magician on, and they did a special segment. They said, only listen to this if you want to find out how it was done. And he comes on in the segment and he says, look, I'll tell you how it's done, but it's going to bum you out. He actually said something more colorful. It's going to bum you out. And you know what? There is a bummer quality to this because you take something that is kind of beyond us and magical and kind of expands the way you think about the world and the universe, and you kind of boil it down to, well, here's how the tracking camera and the infrared light looks, and it kind of bums you out. And I think it, it does kind of, th that fact sort of connects to the final thing that Paul was saying a moment ago, which is it actually is significant that we all be thinking about something outside our partisan warfare. The reason I think it's important for us to cover it on a show that's mostly about politics is that we are in a really awful place in our public discourse. And, you know, maybe the thought that there is something out there beyond ourselves would be the kind of thing that could unite people once again. And that's sort of an encouraging thought. By no means, by doing this video and, and breaking down these, these DOD, you know, uh, uh, camera shots of, of object, in no way are we trying to shut down that kind of discourse or be a bummer. We are not. We, I, I, it is entirely possible to say, you know what, there are conventional explanations for these things. And also we should be searching for life elsewhere in the universe. The thought that we are, you know, our little petty squabbles, like, you know, what's going on in Texas with voting rights really aren't that significant right now. And maybe we should get over ourselves and, and try and be a, a little bit more high-minded and united, that's a, that's a good thing. So I encourage people to check out the videos. It's on Facebook, Beyond Politics. It's on YouTube. Search for it. And, uh, and of course, subscribe to our podcast. Um, but you, you be the judge. You know, let me just chime in and say, here's another interesting factoid or, or, or about, about being, about being united. So Harry Reid's program uh, run by Mr. Elizondo, most of the money went to a guy named Bigelow, who was a friend of Reid, who hired people to research um, UFOs. And when all was said and done, Mr. Bigelow pointed out that internationally, we are the most backward country in the world on this issue. Our scientists are scared of being ostracized and our media is scared of the stigma. China and Russia are much more open, work on this with huge organizations within their countries. Countries like Belgium, France, England, and Chile are more open too. They're proactive and we're being held back by a juvenile 
tattoo. And just to put a fine point on Mr. Elizondo, who is who is no tin hat wearing crazy guy. Alicia, I'm not looking at you, although mm-hmm. our view, our listeners cannot see the elegant tinfoil hat which you are wearing. I Mr. put effort Ele- into this. I know, it, and it's gorgeous. Thank you. Mr. Elizondo, in his letter, said, the many accounts from the Navy and other services of unusual aerial systems interfering with military weapon platforms and displaying beyond next generation capabilities remains a vital need to ascertain capability and intent of these phenomena for the benefit of the armed forces and the nation. And he called for an end to secrecy. And for his part, Harry Reid, a no-nonsense former boxer, former majority leader of the United States Senate said, if anyone says they have the answers now, they're fooling themselves. We do not know but we have to start someplace. Well, ladies and gents, it sounds like the U.S. government is finally starting to come clean about what they know and don't know. And let's not forget, particularly with today's technologies, we can, if you look at one incident, any one incident of almost anything, it can be explained in whatever way you want to explain it. If you want to debunk it, you can probably come up with a way to debunk it. But then you look at the whole package of generations of cave drawings, literally ancient cave drawings that depict rectangular and triangular things in the sky. And you look at the entirety of sightings of unexplained flying objects in the sky and you go, okay, I could break down each one of these 1500 or however many there are. But if I look at it as a whole, what's more likely that everyone can be complicatedly explained or that at least one of those is something we don't know. And in addition to UFOs, the other topic that has gone from kooky conspiracy theory that the media said had been thoroughly debunked to, wait a minute, maybe we should talk about this status, is the idea that the COVID-19 pandemic originated in a leak from a lab in Wuhan, China. President Biden is calling for a focused investigation. Is that a good idea? And what does the abrupt change in coverage say about the media, Alicia? Well, I think it's proof positive that politics guides them at every step of the way in political bias. I mean, good. Yes, this should go forward. Of course, we need to know where this virus came from. A lot of us back a year plus ago were skeptical and saying, you know, this is China. They, they do bad things. It's China. And Of course, we have to know where this came from. Well, they said it came from bats. Here's my theory. When someone says, well, China says, I go, "Uh uh-uh, full stop. Full stop, that means the Chinese government and I don't trust them. If China says the sky is blue, I'm going to ask the United States for an independent investigation on their own to determine if the sky is blue. That is how much credibility I give to what the Chinese government tells me about anything. I don't know what happened. What's more likely, a bat? or that there happens to be right in that city, a bioweapons lab where they have some of the most dangerous pathogens on the face of the earth and it escaped. Maybe it escaped to a bat. I have no idea. I am not a scientist of any way, shape or form, but I think trusting the word of the Chinese government is foolish and foolhardy. And I don't know if we're ever going to know where this came from because our access to China and the people that know the answers is probably very limited. But the more we can know, the better to prevent something like this from ever happening again. 
or if necessary, hold accountable anyone that must be held accountable for this. China did not give us all the rest of the world the full information early on. Had China been more transparent when whatever happened happened, whether a bat got a mutated virus or whether it leaked out of a biomedical or weapons lab, had we better known what we were getting, we could have possibly prevented more lives. You know, I get it. People, you know, didn't trust Tom Cotton when he first came out and they thought this was a conspiracy theory that it came from a lab because it was Tom Cotton saying it and the media is liberal and they made fun of him and they mocked him. When, you know, Donald Trump said something, the media majority of which did not like him, they mocked him. Donald Trump, I think we all know I'm not his biggest cheerleader, but he wasn't wrong every single thing he did and said. The same goes with Tom Cotton. And so what the media did was they buried this story. They mocked it. They didn't just bury it. They mocked it. Anyone who believed it was a conspiracy theory because for some reason, China became a more credible source than Donald Trump or Tom Cotton, neither of which should have said, I was a journalist for over a decade. You have to know your source and you should always present both sides. And they absolutely failed. And they failed in their duty on this one. Congressman Holtz. Well, you know, before we went on, on the air, Matt Robeson wrote a, 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 a fascinating screed about uh, Donald Trump. And I'm, I'm hoping that he reads it verbatim on the air because <laughs> it was actually the, the best commentary about well, what all this has meant. Buried, buried in all of the caca that we're dealing with about this is a simple, a simple fact. It's important to find out what the origin of this was to make sure that we can do what can be done to prevent similar events in the future. Uh, and we are dealing with a restrictive and secretive um, and mendacious government in the Chinese government. That is, that is true for sure. And we know that the both in China and in various places around the world, including in the United States, there are laboratories where seriously dangerous pathogens and viruses are being studied in a variety of ways. I mean, in the United States, for example, off the tip of the North Shore of Long Island, there is a little island called Plum Island, and you can only reach it by government boat. Um, it's patrolled. Uh, they keep everybody away. There are smokestacks and laboratory-looking buildings, and they are apparently reputed to be studying uh, animal viruses or animal diseases. So who knows what's really going on in the highly classified Plum Island laboratory surrounded, surrounded by, by water and um, hard Hard, hard to reach, but we know that there were, uh, were labs in China, um, and it sounds highly likely that that one way or another, uh, it is well. Let me say, highly possible one way or another, that this virus either was was developed or spawned or or leaked from one of these labs where they perhaps were studying bats or who knows what. But, but um, I, I guess we can all eat a little crow because as, as crazy and as Donald Trump was, 
um, and as inflammatory as his language has been about China and Wuhan, um, he may he may have been right. Um, now that's a that's a frightening prospect for a guy like me. Uh, but I, I'll I'll defer on this to Matt Robeson's screed about Donald Trump. Look, Go ahead, I mean, Robeson. I- well, to understand my screed, I, I mean, it was in response to Alicia pointing out that they're instituting a naming convention for variants of the COVID causing virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, based on Greek letters so that nobody, no country is sort of virus shamed by having its name attached to a variant, you know, the South American variant, the Brazil variant. See, I'm doing it. Now I'm virus shaming other countries. Okay, why is that happening? It's because Donald Trump was doing blame shifting and trying to label it the China virus because he was like, oh, please, please blame someone else other than me. So look, the problem, I don't don't think this is rocket science here. The problem with the Wuhan thing was that Donald Trump, the greatest liar in the history of lying, was trying to deflect blame which he richly deserved. And again, I invite our listeners, find me on Facebook. I'm I'm inviting you. Go to Beyond Politics on Facebook. If you disagree that Donald Trump bears significant blame for 600,000 American deaths, I am very happy to engage with you respectfully on this topic. So, you know, Donald Trump was trying to blame shift for his massive intergalactic mess up that was killing thousands of Americans a little over a year ago. And of course, no one believed him. He was the president who cried China. And now, lo and behold, yes, a broken clock is right twice a day. And in this case, he may have, we don't know, by the way, that it was from a lab, but we're admitting the possibility that he may have been right for totally the wrong reasons, right? And it's the same thing with the Greek thing now with the naming convention. He's not totally wrong when he said, well, look, there's a long history of naming viruses for the area of the world they emerged in. But it's just that he had wrapped his whole China virus thing in a gigantic blanket of flop sweating blame shifting, which was transparently dumb ill-motivated. And now with this whole Greek letter thing, we're, we're going in retconning. We have to retroactively go back and make true the pushback that we provided at the time was, oh no, you don't do that. You can't possibly name a virus for an area of the world because you're blame shifting and that's racist and blah, blah, blah. So it's a stupidity spread, spread thinly over an even bigger stupidity wrapped in a soft flowery stupidity. It's a stupid gyro, or as the Greeks would say, gyro. My final point about all this is I agree with Paul that it really only matters to have this discussion if it's going to change our behavior in the future. Yes, it kind of matters from the standpoint of like containing lab leaks and there's kind of a scientific process there. What I'm a little bit more worried about, and this is mostly a politics show from a politics and public discourse standpoint, is that we have reached a point where for their own self-serving purposes. People like Tom Cotton and Donald Trump, and sure, people on the Democratic side as well, try very hard to muddy the waters on any topic of conversation to suit their own political purposes. The fact is that science deals with uncertainty, probability, likelihood, 
Normally, scientists would acknowledge that. They would say, here's our leading theory. Here's something that we consider to be much less likely, but we can't exclude it. The problem is when you're talking politics, and Alicia, as a, as a PR professional, knows this better than anyone. If you admit an opening, you create that nuance, you create uncertainty, you create the chance for idiots to insert themselves and to sow doubt, to benefit themselves, and to, to raise a question in the public mind. So it's a basic problem with our inability these days to have a science-based conversation where we say, we don't have all the answers, here's our leading theory. It's kind of like the, dis the discourse about masks and the science on it, which shifted over time as our understanding evolved. That is, to me, the longer run, bigger problem. You know, the really important thing you've raised is the issue of naming uh, using Greek. So first mm -hmm. of all, uh, all I can tell you is alpha, beta, delta, theta are really boring. I want to see things be named after Greek delicacies like moussaka. I want to see halloumi. I want to see dolmadotis or what, whatever the... Grape leaves are called. I want to oh, see. Mathis. Yes, there you go. So I'm going to turn it over to Alicia for a rundown on the kind of Greek delicacies that we could name things after. Although it it it, it doesn't do much for Greece, for example, to have the moussaka flu. I mean that <laughs> that that would not be very helpful. <laughs> For the listeners that don't know, my married last name is actually Xanthopoulos. So hence the kind of Greek swing. And when I saw this story, look, I asked my husband and what he thought of this. And he said, I think in another scenario, we'd be proud that they chose to use the Greek alphabet to name things. If it were not under the guise of to avoid stigma, because now all the viruses are related to the Greeks. And <laughs> what is the point of that? Um, I'm with Paul because do you know what? If we named them after Greek delicacies, people would be Googling the recipes. Like, I want one named Pasticcio or Fetus. Like, we could have a lot of fun with this. What if that delicious creamy sauce, there's a tzatziki virus? That acronym actually sounds like a virus, though. That's no, kind no, of weird. That actually, that doesn't, also that doesn't sound delicious. Like, I don't want, I don't want to eat anything that I would associate with a sneeze. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> fair but let's understand how just ridiculous this is we can't call it the south african variant because it came from south africa which would be informative because then you could actually look and see what the differences with the south african variant is versus the new vietnamese variant but the world health organization who came up with this whole scheme is so concerned about the sensitivities of people in foreign countries who aren't being blamed for this just it's a variant in their nation that they decided well you know Everybody likes the Greeks, so if we blame them, they still won't, you know, have violent attacks on them or something. I don't know. Everyone does like the Greeks with, oh, with good reason. Them. Yeah, the Greeks invented democracy. Pizza. Well, well, pizza. The well, Greeks okay, that too. Yeah, but, you know, pizza. That's, pizza that's in the United stuff. States. They did Greek pizza. In the, it's how my in-laws came over here. Came over here in the '60s and '70s. Opened up a pizza joint. It was what they did. They're hard workers. And speaking on behalf of my husband, they're also handsome. Well, there you go. <laughs> look, I hate this whole process of, wow, we all said something last year. Now we better, because oh. all of a sudden it was okay to name variants of the virus after areas of the world. Then what we were saying five minutes ago in relation to Donald Trump, 
would seem hypocritical, right? right. So we, we can't possibly do that now. I look, I mean, I, I do think also that for our listeners who have gotten a heavy dose of bloviating from pundits over the last few days about, ooh, what does this whole Wuhan thing mean for the state of the media? Isn't the media broken? It's like, eh. Yeah, maybe maybe they are. I mean, I have plenty of criticisms of the media. I have plenty of criticisms of the New York Times, but I'm not sure that this is the best example of them. I mean, again, Donald Trump at this point had lied on the record 20,000 times and thoroughly believes that the way to proceed in public is just say something with a lot of conviction, no matter if it's true or not, and you're more likely to win an argument. That's not great. And so, yeah, there was a lot of skepticism of what he was saying. There was a lot of skepticism of what Tom Cotton was saying. I don't know that that makes the media fundamentally more broken than we already knew they were. Well, Democrats in the Texas legislature fled the Capitol this week in order to stall a restrictive voting bill from the Republican majority that included new restrictions on absentee voting granted broad new autonomy and authority to partisan poll watchers, escalated punishments for mistakes or offenses by election officials, and banned both drive-through voting and 24-hour voting, which were used for the first time during the 2020 election in Harris County, home to Houston, and a growing number of the state's Democratic voters. Is the nationwide fight over elections heading into nasty unchartered territory, Alicia? Well, it's nasty, but it's very charted. <laughs> it's been going on for a long time. Uh, I think what happened in the Texas legislature is disappointing and for two reasons. Number one, there's all this fury over no drive-through voting, no 24-hour voting. And as you pointed out, Ken, it was only ever used once. So it's, oh, we're disenfranchising voters. And no, it was never used before. Once, once in history. So I can't say, thank you. You know, you can't claim that there's this overhauling of the system and it's bad and it's it's to disenfranchise voters and oppress the minority vote because they did it once. They didn't like it. They're going to go back to how it used to be. But my other problem and some parts of the law I would support and some I would not. But my big problem is this. And whenever any party does it and both parties have done it over the years, I don't like when they walk out on their job. It's like why I don't like the filibuster. Right. If you don't like something you are elected to still stand there and vote yay or nay and go through the process of government as it was intended. If you walk out because you're just going to stop action, that's not how government's supposed to work. And that's not what you are hired by the people to do. Sometimes you're going to lose a vote. That's what elections are for. So in two years or four years, whatever their system is, run and run on the fact that this is a terrible law and you know people get elected and maybe the shift of the government goes from red to blue and and then you vote it that's how government works it doesn't work that i'm going to stall activity unless that activity goes my way that is not how our system was intended paul hodes well i agree with alicia you know in 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 the ideal world uh representatives should stay on the job and not walk out everybody feels bad when people walk out i mean it it's it it's like uh, don't you have anything better to throw at this than walking out and i guess sometimes the answer is no we don't all we're gonna do the only way to stop this craziness is we're gonna walk out so there won't be a quorum so we can't vote on it so it won't pass um what's going on in texas is 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 a microcosm of what's going on all over the country a 
regressive spasm of authoritarian insanity um, foisted on us by the big lie, Donald Trump and the rest of the crazy people who are now seem to be in control of what was the grand old party. And the restrictions on voting are exactly the opposite of what we ought to be doing about our voting system. It ought to be more uniform. It ought to be more open. It ought to be made easier and easier and easier so that more and more people vote because actually one of the crises in our democracy is the fact that so few people still uh, get out to vote. They feel like they've lost their voice, like maybe too difficult. And we should be doing exactly the opposite of what Texas and so many other states are doing. Now, that said, I come back to sometimes, um, uh, I, 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 personally, I would have been really torn about walking out. Uh, I know there probably was pressure from the leadership to walk out in Texas. And it, it's not a tactic that any of us should expect to favor or expect to endorse. Um, and they felt like this was, I guess, being rammed down their throats and there was no other way to stop it. So they walked out. Um, so I'm, I'm really of two minds about it. I'm, I, I, I don't condone it. And, uh, and then on the other hand, I say, well, good on you. You, 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 you stopped it. Um, but it's, you know, that's not the way democracy works. And so Alicia's point that we ought to suffer the awful consequences of the elections and suffer in silence and sit there and stew and vote against it and lose. Uh, I suppose that that's one way to approach it. And then the other way to approach it is um, things I can't say on the air and uh, out we go. Matt, take us home. Yeah, I totally disagree with both of you. I mean, remember that we're broadcasting this in the catchment area, the home of the New England Patriots, who are famous for doing everything available under the rules to win. So if you found yourself loudly protesting Tom Brady's innocence or, or spy gate, you know, it's like, hey, under the rules, we're allowed to do this. We are allowed to film the other team's practice. It's okay. It's under the rules. Then I, I don't understand what the problem is with Democrats in the Texas state legislature doing what they are allowed to do under the rules to prevent a quorum and to delay a vote on something, especially when what you're talking about is a self-fulfilling prophecy type law. So what's what Texas Republicans are trying to do here is give themselves a political advantage so that they'll win the next election so that they can pass more laws that will help them to, in the future, win more elections. Alicia, I just don't agree with your prescription here as well. Democrats, if you want to stop this process, just start winning the elections. Not sure I see the logic in that if what you're spinning forward is an attempt to keep Democrats from winning elections. I will say, though, that both sides are a little dumb on this because the evidence shows that these means, as Alicia does point out correctly, that Republicans are undertaking aren't actually that effective in depressing voter turnout among Democratic voting constituencies. They actually may affect both sides about equally. And Democrats may get so offended by these attempts to disenfranchise them that they tend to make up for it by increasing their turnout. There's a fair amount of evidence to that. So it seems like mostly a zero-sum game. But Alicia, if you disagree, by all means, chime in in our last 45 seconds here. 
Well, I would just like to point out, if you do not support one party promoting and supporting election laws that are to advance them and their success, then will you come out now and oppose H.R. 1? Well, that is not at all what H.R. 1 does. And I so I absolutely am not against it. I don't love every part of H.R. 1, but I absolutely believe in an even playing field for all parties so that you don't have one party able to control their own election destiny and essentially choose their voters rather than the voters choosing their politicians. I believe in the V for Vendetta principle, which is the government should be afraid of the people. The people should not be afraid of their government. The people are in charge in this country. And if you have politicians of one particular political party drawing the lines and giving themselves every advantage in the book in order to keep themselves in office, the situation is completely on its head and anti-democratic. Such is done in HR1. <laughs> and that's going to have to do it for this special edition of Balance of Power. For Paul Hose, Matt Robeson, and Alicia Preston, I'm Ken Kale. Be with us next time.